0: The fifty-fifth episode of the Week with Roger, a conversation between analysts about all things telecom, media, and technology from Recon Analytics. I'm Don Kellogg, and with me, as always, is Roger Entner. How you doing, Roger?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm good. So this week, we're pleased to welcome Dan Hesse onto the podcast. Dan, how you doing?
2: Doing great. Glad to be with you guys.
0: Excellent. So, Dan, a lot of folks know you from your time as the CEO of Sprint, uh, and more specifically. From creating the true, first truly unlimited wireless rate plan, simply everything, but this wasn't the first time you developed a disruptive, innovative offering. Can you tell us a little bit about the digital run rate plan you developed when you were the CEO of AT&T Wireless?
2: Many years ago, it was back in 1998 when we when we launched it. So I was, uh, you know, kind of a brand new CEO sent out to, and, and kind of the story here is going to be with respect to the two of them. You know, at at and when I went out there at at and Wireless in 97 as the CEO, AT&T had bought McCaw a few years earlier. The company was number one in the wireless space in the U.S. at and as a corporation was doing great. And it is actually harder and more complex and there's more to being creative and being disruptive when you're on top of the world than when you almost need to create to survive. So it was really, uh, you know, I think Clayton Christensen, God rest his soul. You know, his concept of creative destruction is a lot what I did uh, out at AT AT&T with with digital one rate. So, you know, my my job when I went out there was just Dan, don't screw it up. things were going well. I was succeeding a fantastic executive, Steve Hooper, who had been the CEO of AT&T Wireless. Before him was a legend, Jim Barksdale, before him, another legend, Craig McCaw. Fantastic culture, you know, the employee morale scores were off the charts. The company was doing well, so I was inheriting, if you will, a strong company. But the difference was it was bought by at and and they were going through a transformation where they were beginning to launch. It had been a cellular company with certain regions. It was launching new markets at which it had won the PCS of the 1900 auctions. I remember my first day on the job. I'm at the Woodmark Hotel in Kirkland, Washington kerry larson who's the head of hr todd wolfenbarger who's the head of pr come into my room and they're telling me how listen tomorrow you know some guys are going to come in and probably soak you with water everybody on the you know the executive floor have these big super soakers but you have the biggest one because you're the ceo so you just need to let them have it and i'm listening to this that this is part of the culture of the firm and i go this is the kind of outfit that i'm dying to be a part of but you know so I spent kind of the first 6 months really trying to, you know, learn the business. I had tremendous, you know, tremendous talent there, but I was coming off a situation where I had been the, the head of the online services group at AT&T and we had just launched AT&T WorldNet shortly before I came out to run AT&T Wireless and we went from basically a standing start to the number 1 internet service provider in the country in 9 months. And it's because we launched something really simple. You know, that was back in the dial up days, you know, when you went on the internet, you'd hear that, eh, you know, the modem and it was, it was per minute. You hear these per minute charges, you know, as the meter was running when you surfed. And we launched, if you were an AT&T customer, which eliminated, of course, 6% of the, of the US at the time. If you were an AT&T long distance customer, you get $5 off. So instead of $25 a month for $20 a month, you'd get unlimited internet. So the, The meter wouldn't run anymore. And we pointed the big AT&T brand at it, and it did fantastically. So I was trying to, as I watched the movie in front of me in terms of the wireless industry, would there be an opportunity to do something disruptive again? One of the things that really stood out in the Macaw culture, we still kind of called it the Macaw culture because, you know, Craig was the author and, and, you know, that great group of executives had really created this strong culture, was local empowerment. It was almost like guerrilla warfare. What made Macaw so good was they were so responsive. They didn't have to come back to headquarters. You had five regional presidents with full p Each market did their own thing. They had their own rate plans. They bought their own phones. They responded how they wanted to. They did their own advertising. You couldn't go to any two cities in the AT&T wireless footprint across the country and see the same ads or typically see the same phones. It was very, very local and our big competitors at the time, it made sense. Actually, on my wall, there's the cover of a big wireless magazine that had the big five. It had me, and then there's a picture of uh, Sam Ginn, who was the CEO of Airtouch, which was really the old Pactel, Stan Sigmund, the CEO of SBC, wireless, Denny Striegel, the CEO of Bell Atlantic, wireless, Stan Ham, the CEO of Bell South. So it was, the reason it was local is because you were competing against a different player in every market, it was a very local business. But what we had at, at AT&T was, you know, a national brand that wasn't being used. We had a national sales force. There was also, it was white space. Nobody owned national. I'd also been in business sales for a long time. I had been a national account manager myself, and I knew how much money we made and how much calling there was with travelers, but the mobile phone. The industry back then, you were penalized for being mobile. There were these things called roaming charges. And then, of course, long-distance charges on top of that. Nobody used their phone when traveling. If you remember, you know, I remember going to Newark Airport, and there would be a line of pay phones as long as the eye can see, and people lined up in line waiting to get on the pay phones to use their calling card. Or then they'd go to their hotel to use their calling card to make long-distance calls. Because people didn't make them on their mobile phone because roaming was so expensive. It was also extraordinarily complex because pretty much every rate plan, plan in wireless was the same back then. I mean, in my home market, making a local call, A cents a minute. Home market, making a long distance call, B cents a minute. Traveling, making a local call, C cents a minute. Traveling, making a long distance call, D cents a minute. Extraordinarily complex. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we become a national player? But the culture was so strong, I didn't want to screw it up. You know, the super soakers, the employee engagement and everything. I'm in the presentation and Nick kowser who's our chief technology officer, is going through this thing called, you know, the IRDB, Intelligent Roaming Database, which was a patent that he and the team and, you know, Steve Hooper who had been the CEO before me, had come up with as a way of making the phones work seamlessly as AT&T Wireless had been a 1G, 850 megahertz market company, bought 1900 at digital. So bringing in 2G at PCS, but was also gonna put PCS into its 850 markets. And then you roamed on other analog carriers, how that phone would work seamlessly. And I'm looking at this and going, and my light bulb went off in my head. There is an opportunity here to do something Disruptive. So I I have these really smart people at AT and Wireless across the country. It's January of '98. I said we're going to do something. We have to do something that where we go national. That's white space. There is no national carrier. We're spending too much money in marketing, IT, phone buying, what have you. We need to keep local, but we have to do something disruptive. It has to, you know it has to be really simple. And I went through what we learned in terms of customers paying a premium for simplicity, which is what we learned with WorldNet. And so they come out of this room and they have some ideas. And one of the really smart guys was a marketing guy who was the president of my central region, Bill Malloy. And he's with a finance guy, Jeff Lyman. And they go, you know, we could just eliminate roaming on all, in long distance altogether if we could. And I said, if we could just have one rate per call, a call is a call. And I said, that's it. I just knew right away that was the idea. But I said, how do we make money? I said, we think we have some ideas. But we got to go figure it out. So there's, by the way, the complexity and the difficulty is when you're doing something like this and there's so much unknown is how do you know you're doing the right thing financially for your firm? So we, you know, you have to figure out how many new customers you are going to bring in from your competitors. How many of your existing customers are going to migrate? How many migrate up? How many migrate down? How much of your traffic is going to be on net, off net? What are your assumptions around churn? Well, anyway, we came up with these three buckets and created digital one rate where there was a $90 plan, a 120 plan and a 150 plan. And there was breakage. That was another one. Nice thing about rate plans is you also made some assumptions around that. So people think they're buying it for 15 cents a minute, but that's only if you hit your bucket right on the Right on the number. If you're over it, it's 25 cents a minute over, which is your incentive to buy a bigger bucket plan. If you're under, of course, the the rates are better. So at the end of the day, our Art Min, after we launched it, revenue per minute was 20 and a half cents. Our ARPU was $128 a month. It was incredibly profitable. But the big profit driver, of course, because the killer was roaming, we paid an average of, I think, 47 cents a minute for a roaming minute back then. That's what we paid to the rural carriers of the world and, 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 and other carriers. What this would allow us to do, the intelligent roaming database not only allowed us in essence to move roaming minutes uh, between and, and pick you know, what mode and what have you, but it allowed us to move between the A and the B side, which there are basically two analog carriers. So we could put our roaming minutes out for bid, but this was secret. We went out and launched it. We've got about 80% of the roaming minutes in the market. And then we had what was called monopsony power. And then we could negotiate these roaming rates down, which is a big part of the, uh, the assumption. There were a couple of other big things that had to happen. One was, and this is what makes it difficult for a big company that's doing well, you have to convince the company to let you go do it. Because in creative destruction, you're going to be destroying you know, a very profitable business like the calling card business. And so Mike Armstrong, to his credit, Believed in it, but more importantly, my peers, you know, one of the great things about, you know, AT&T growing up is the people running the other units of the company. They knew it might hurt their unit, but they looked out for the big AT&T number one. Gail McGovern, Jeff Whiteson, Frank Iana, you know, my, my teammates all supported it. Marilyn Laurie, who was running, you know, PR at the time, got it and knew that's where to take the AT&T brand and put a lot of AT&T advertising dollars also behind it as well. Also had to sell it to my team inside Macaw, if you will, or AT&T Wireless, because it was going to change the culture. We were going from a regionally dominant, locally dominant, strong, wonderful culture to a national one. So we reorganized the company. We were going to go from all these different IT systems to one. We were going to buy phones together. We were going to do the same advertising. That was a big change. But if you launch, if you communicate a reorg as part of something you're doing in the market, and we launched Digital One Rate, and it was extraordinarily successful, they got it. They understood it, and they were on board. But the other big thing, if you're going to do something disruptive, that you have to take into consideration is the supply chain. So if we were going to do this, I need to get my suppliers, Ericsson, Nokia, because this was going to be radically different, and it was going to shift volumes dramatically uh, as well. I remember it was February 1998. Uh, We had just come up with the idea like two weeks earlier, but we looked at how many of these tri-mode phones we had ordered because we knew this was going to be big and successful when we launched it. We ended up launching it actually on the last day of my first year on the job. We picked the target date, which was early May, of of 98 i was with kp wilska who was the head of nokia the americas you know out of dallas we were at a tdma if you remember those acronyms tdma conference in vancouver canada and i said you know i know the the roll-up of the of the 6160 which was nokia's tri-mode phone was only a couple hundred thousand units i said i want at least a million on the day of launch which is in may i know he couldn't do that but as many as you can make, I don't care what you do. You move heaven and earth, not only between my orders but everyone else's. You have to you have to take your numbers up by huge multiples in a short period of time. And he goes, "Well, I, I can't do that." And so I look. I, so I told him, "I'm going to take you into my confidence." And I told him about Digital One Rate, which was just massively disruptive. In his eyes, he still remembers it. His eyes got huge. He literally said, "Excuse me." He got on the phone on his cell phone got everybody up out of bed in finland and they moved heaven and earth to start making as many of these 6160s as they could make they moved the production lines i know from my competitors they moved it from other phones we had ordered they went all out and it worked out well for nokia almost overnight they went from number three to number one in the us because we required the last thing if you look at the objectives that we were focusing on was digital migration was huge and what Troubled us economically about migrating our customer base from analog to digital because back then you had phone subsidies and that was a big piece of your economics. How expensive that was going to be. We required customers to buy a tri-mode phone, and we didn't subsidize them at all in order to get the rate plan. So the customer would be paying for the digital for digital migration, and that made huge economic difference and moved people over. know from analog to digital in a big way very quickly so so it was a
1: win-win-win-win situation
2: it it actually turned out to be that way you're obviously taking risk but we we just we we knew this was a you know those of us on a small core team because we also needed to keep it fairly secret but yes exactly the suppliers the those that were with us won it was great for at&t it repositioned our brand yes We did, if you will, eat your young in that it did impact the revenues of the calling card business. But if we didn't do it, somebody was going to do it and we we dominated that space. And of course, the pie got much bigger. That's another thing, by the way. A lot of times when you're doing something disruptive, when it is disruptive, you're often only looking at your industry as a revenue source. If it's disruptive enough, you'll grab revenues from adjacent industries like we did here. You know, we had the wireless industry. We were taking it from another part of the business as they would move in because you were addressing an unmet customer need, And there was white space, if you will. Nobody owned the national position in mobile. And so we were taking advantage of all our competitive advantages, the ATT national brand, the at and national footprint, things that others didn't have, the IRDB technology that others didn't have but it was, it turned out to be a win all around. And you know, the only people it wasn't a win for was our competitors. I, I mean, I heard from all of them and still do, you know, they were great people. I think of basically the geniuses, and I mentioned a few of them, you know, the Sigmunds and the Striegls and the, you know, the, the John Stantons who ran Western Wireless, which was a world carrier, you know, at the time. And everyone, everybody in the industry can tell me where they were the minute they heard about digital one rate, it's kind of like, you know, people can tell you when, where they were, when, you know, it was, could be nine 11 or, or whatever a big event is, they can tell you where they were. It was that disruptive.
1: Yeah. So you had to overcome a lot of challenges inside because things were going well and and do things differently. And then if we forward to sprint, you know, you came into sprint when, when the company was really in dire straits, you know, heading Heading towards bankruptcy and and you come in and and you rescue the company and not only by bringing a new culture and new way of doing it but also with a new rate plan so when you came to to sprint and then launched the simply everything plan, what was the thought process here? you know obviously you know on one hand it's so clear that you have to do something different, but so many people don't do it, even though it's obvious.
2: Well, thanks for the kind words, and and you're right. You know, we were in, in dire straits, and you know, desperate situations sometimes call for desperate measures, and you never want to waste a good crisis. So when I came into Sprint, we knew, you know, we needed to do something. You know, not so much, you know, creative destruction, but uh, you know, it was more like imminent destruction if we if we didn't do something what was similar to me is that, you know I, I was coming into the industry i'd been out actually in the landline world i was the ceo of a company called embark when i came into sprint and it seemed like deja vu all over again where back in 97 98 where you had all this complexity because you had different charges for local and long distance and roaming and all this this complex mess and expense what had happened shortly before i came to sprint was the smartphone had come out and you had the launch of the iPhone. And so there was just like there was no rate plan for 2G, there was no rate plan for 3G. It was extremely complex. There were all these text charges, data charges, and data was anything that wasn't a voice call or a text, whether you were surfing or doing an an email or what have you. So you had all that complexity. Plus on top of it, from a complexity point of view, people were used to cell phones that basically had 10 buttons. You know, you, you dialed numbers. By the way, let, let me tell a, a little anecdote of Embark. And
1: probably a year, year and a half ago, and at that time there was an analyst conference. You know, they, they said like, oh, we're going to make an announcement and, and this and that. And then they said, you know, we're going to spin off our, our wireline group and let us introduce the CEO of that to you. And, and in walked you and like every wireless analyst in the room was like why are you not making that man the ceo of your wireless organisation but put him in charge of a of a uh, of of the wireline arm which then gets spun out and and everything and you know basically our expectation came true like 2 years later when when you took over sprint but they could have had you 2
2: years earlier right well um you know at, at the time they had just uh, you know announced a merger and things at Sprint and then of course with nextel were are going well and the re- what attracted me to the wireline world Roger is there was also an opportunity to disrupt and change and create and innovate there my God if there was any place that needed it it was the it was the the wireline business and in fact just a couple of days ago i'm still I still do regular zooms with my old embark leadership team just like I do with my you know former sprint leadership team we had a lot of fun together and and we innovated but there of course you know, there's only so much you can do um, in in the wireline world because it you know you were basically just stalling uh, or delaying the inevitable uh, but we had but we had fun doing it but I I, I appreciate the the kind words but but you know arriving um, you know two years later you know right around you know right around Christmas time 2007 you had this um, the same issue. You had this tremendous complexity coming into the wireless space. So I knew we had a chance to, to win by being simple. And also what gave us some license at Sprint is we really had no clear brand position. So you started looking at the white space. So if you looked at the brand positions, Verizon owned network. Can you hear me now? AT&T had the iPhone. We're the, we have the iPhone and no one else does. And that's all they needed. That was their brand message. And that was powerful. T-Mobile price, low price. High. So we really didn't have a place, and I saw there was an opportunity for us to own Simplicity and going back to WorldNet and Digital One rate, and and I knew that was the spot and wanted to go to Unlimited. Of course, the the reason others didn't go to Unlimited was you know the economics, and but I put some smart people you know in a room at Sprint, just like there have been really smart people in the room at AT and T Wireless. So my pricing guy, Will Souter, and then. There are guys like Brad Hampton from finance, really smart guys to figure out, you know, again, all the assumptions around usage, how many customers will come in from your competitors of your existing customers, how many buy up and how many buy down. And where I kept telling my group they're wrong, I go, you're going to be shocked by the percentage of customers that buy up. It'll be at least two because they thought maybe two thirds buying down, one third buying up. I go to, it's going to be the reverse. You'd be surprised at customers wanting that insurance policy in terms of ARPU. And I'm saying buying up, you know, a customer who's on a $50 plan will go up to that $100 plan because we ended up launching simply everything at $99 a month. And it was, you know, knock yourself out, surf as much as you want, text as much as you want, call as much as you want. Your bill's always the same, 99 The other thing that drove that is I was looking at our customer satisfaction performance, which was terrible. It was tanking. And one of the reasons it was tanking is we were we spent so much on customer care. And I looked at the reasons customers were calling. They were leaving because we couldn't answer the phones. Yes, we were spending a ton of money. It was the number one reason they were calling were questions about the bill. Yeah, I didn't make that long-distance call. What are these data charges about? How about this text thing? I said, man, if we just make it simple, we can reduce the calls to care and start closing call centers. We ended up once, after we launched Simply Everything and Unlimited, We closed 42 call centers and we're answering the phone faster than we were before. We went from spending $4 billion a year on customer service to $2 billion a year. We took $2 billion out of our expense stream. We also reduced 85% of our rate plans, which was extremely expensive and complex from a selling, service, IT perspective. So When you simplify your business, which is the same thing I did with AT&T Wireless, simplified the business, we took out 80% of the rate plan combinations it also reduces your costs a lot. And it's actually one of the things that when entrepreneurs often when they scale, what they miss is they keep adding things without taking things out. But when your company gets to a certain size, that's an exponential increase in complexity, you know, because it's combinations of things. You need to take things out when you put things in. So we, we launched it at 99, also very much like AT and T Wireless, where you're making it a real offer. It's, it's a rate plan that goes with an iconic device. We didn't have the iconic iPhone, and because the iPhone was being discounted or subsidized so much from AT and T, we couldn't require full price. But the Samsung Instinct was our first really cool Android device. We we paired it with that. The ad agency, because we really didn't have a brand position, talked me into going on television and doing these black and white ads where we would launch you know, when we launched. Simply everything is something. As, as something different, and it was by far our most profitable rate plan. And we always kept unlimited rate plans. You know, even when I left, you know, that brand position, that white space of simply everything. When you did brand research, you said unlimited customers. You know, even seven years later, said Sprint. You know, we kind of owned, you know, owned that. We'll call it that that brand space of simplicity.
0: Well, and here we are. You know, however many years afterwards, and and the entire wireless industry is driven by kind of unlimited plan pricing that you really kind of brought to the fore, right? I think it's interesting. I know you had a fairly close relationship with John Ledger as well, correct? Uh, At T-Mobile, and I think that to some extent also drove some of the decisions they made around unlimited. Is that is that a fair statement?
2: Well, my relationship with John, we became close actually before I went out to run ATC Wireless. He worked for me, you know, I like to take credit for him as a protege. He was one of those really high potential, extremely talented people that I noticed that that that, uh, that I worked with and and got him to work for me uh, cuz he's some he's just somebody I knew had had tremendous potential. So Actually, I you know he stopped coming to CTIA meetings. He really left the the, the CTIA and you know, that's the the wireless industry trade association. He came to the very first meeting, and then he stopped coming. And I said, "Well, why did you come to the first one, John?" He goes, "I wanted to see you." But then after that, he you know he he was becoming the uncarrier. So if you will participating in something with other wireless carriers was not was well, not his strategy. I don't really don't know at T Mobile how much of his strategy or plan had anything to do with. You know, watching what I was doing at Sprint. And during that time, you know, we were competitors. We didn't really talk very much during, during my years at Sprint. But once I retired from Sprint, we, you know, we kind of could start talking again and communicating. But he's somebody I feel, you know, I have very high regard for and think he did a great job at T-Mobile. But we developed our relationship before our wireless days.
1: Well, I think you both recognized. Uh, when you came into a, a, a carrier in a difficult position, that if you didn't do something radically different than your predecessors, you would end up with the same results as they they had. And you were not there to have the same results as your predecessors, so you had to do things radically different. And I think uh, you know the success shows that you have to be daring, that you have to be bold, but that you have to put your decisions on a sound analysis and and think through all the different bits and pieces that that make it work right and i think that's the lesson here and i'm very happy that you uh, had the time to to talk with us and tell us how how these two iconic moments these really disruptive uh, moments that that are part of our everyday life without Remembering why and who who brought it to us, you know
2: that you had time to share that with us. So thank you, Dan, for for coming on on our podcast. Well, my, my pleasure. And you know the other thing that uh, that shouldn't be lost is when you're launching something that's really radical and new. It's exciting for everybody in the company. It creates so much, you know, energy and engagement of of your talent. It's almost like a drug in a very positive way for the entire team. Uh, and uh, and that's what, another reason I would encourage CEOs out there to innovate uh, and, and change. I'll make one final comment, Roger, and that is that, you know, the, the environment that John and I grew up in, you know, at AT&T, AT&T was a technology company. It was created by an inventor uh, and we had something called Bell Labs. And when you have to figure out how to grow revenues and you can't just go get, you know, grow by taking your competitors' customers, where you're the big guy, you have 90% market share, 93% market share. The only way you can grow, have double-digit growth is to be creative and think about disrupting and where the puck is going. And, and that's one of the great lessons a lot of us learned uh, at at and You were forced to, to create, to grow, because you couldn't grow by just looking laterally at your, at your competitors and figuring out, oh, I'll just drop my price and take their customers. That just doesn't work, but I appreciate being on the show. I, I'm uh, I'm honored that you asked me to, uh, to to be on it. Anytime, thank you. All right, thank you.